start out with a poll, if you guys would help me out for a moment. I'm wondering how many of you, so wait till I finish this, then you can raise your hands and I'll get out my little calculator and I'll add up all the people that, that uh, fit into each category. I wonder how many of you are here because you want to make sure that your life counts for nothing. Don't raise your hand yet. Just going to add a little more to that. You want to fly under the radar. You do not want to hear, well done, good and faithful uh, servant by God. You would, you'd rather hear, uh, I'll just get in there. You disappointed me. That's what you want to hear. You don't want to make a mark for his kingdom. You do not want to get noticed for God. You don't want to make a positive difference in any way, shape, or form whatsoever. And you thought church was the place to learn these secrets. Show of hands. All right, that's easy. How about the opposite? Don't put your hand up yet. Maybe there's anybody here that yearns inside, because this has been me my whole life, to do something great for God. I mean, inside, you're just going, can I, can I do something more than just something little? God, what does it take to be? How does a Billy Graham get to be a Billy Graham? How did Mother Teresa make the, the, the difference she did? How do so many people that I know in my life, and maybe you don't know a lot, but I do, make such an impact? How can I do that? Is that possible? How can I make sure that when my life is done and I stand before you, God, I do here? Well done, good and faithful servant. How can I make sure that, I, that my life doesn't just make an impact, but it makes an eternal impact, that when I'm gone, it just keeps on my life touching others? And you're hoping this might be the place to learn that. A show of hands there. Anybody in that group? All right, that's almost everybody. And I, Obviously, I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but the second group, you're right. You are in the right place, or you ought to be. Church is supposed to be the place where you learn how to do those things. Um, it's not going to be easy, though. Today we're going to find out that, that Nehemiah wanted to do a fantastic thing that had not been done for over a century, well over a century and a half almost. And he's got a dream. God gave him this dream. It's not his. It's a God dream. Uh, but he's going to find out that every dream comes with a price. In fact, let me say it this way. Every dream comes with a price, dearie. Does that help a little bit more? Some of you go, no, that just makes you look weird. How many, show of hands, who watches Once Upon a Time? All right, then for those seven of you, that made sense. The rest of you are going, why am I here? Who is this freak? I don't know. Jesus put it this way. Anyone who wishes to follow me, let him first deny himself, take up his cross, and then follow me. And so this doesn't look too much like sort of easy believism and the health, wealth, prosperity doctrine that's taught so much in America today. Because we kind of think anybody wants to follow Jesus, get ready for blessing. And there is blessing in following Christ. Don't hear me say there's not. But it's not just blessing. It's not just mountaintops following Christ. Not at all. It's valleys too. You are going to walk through the valley when you follow him. In fact, offhand, I cannot think of a single Bible character who did anything great for God uh, or in fact, I can't think of a single Bible character who, who even lived a, a normal life without opposition. It happens. You're going to face opposition. However, now, I can't think of any that, that didn't face it. But when it comes to thinking of a Bible, I'm going to walk among you guys because I don't know what it is when the singing's over. And I heard you guys just lifting up your voices and turned around, hands are raised. You guys look like you're going to break out into a party. I get up to speak and it just shuts off. What, what happened? So bring it back. Come to life. Do you guys need a little bit of this? Because it's helping me. That maybe, maybe we'll provide it next week, the Red Bull. No, today is uh, today's not a day I want to uh, bother my wife. She doesn't like when I drink the Red Bull. And it's our 17-year anniversary today. This is uh, a very special, special day. I don't know how many days that equals that she's been putting up with me, but she's got the count, I think. She knows exactly how many. Uh, 
So I, I can't think of a single Bible character that didn't experience opposition, but I can think of one that shouldn't have. I think in one Bible character, when you look at what he came to do, you're thinking, why would anybody fight this guy? Why would anybody stand in his way? When it comes to Nehemiah, think about this with me for just a second. By the way, how many of you are there now? You, you got your Bibles, you're in Nehemiah. Okay, good. You guys found it pretty quick. That's where you need to be. Chapter 4. Think about this with me for a second. He's rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, which will give the people of Jerusalem safety and security again, will give them freedom of worship. They've got this, this brand new temple built, but everybody's afraid to go there and worship because they don't have protection in the city. You go there, you get mugged, you get harassed, so nothing's working. So he wants to bring them freedom of worship, security, uh, life without fear. He's taking them a step closer to regaining their status as God's chosen and blessed people. Everybody in town should be thrilled about what Nehemiah is going to do. Uh, but it didn't go that way. And it almost never does. It almost never goes that way. So watch this. If you are note takers, and I'd really like to develop you guys into being note takers, uh, and we're going to start providing notes, I think, as we get ready here in a couple of weeks uh, ahead. I want to start putting notes down that we can fill in the blanks. Some of you can't stay awake unless you're filling in blanks. I get that. So we'll do that. Here's one you want to write down. Anyone who attempts to do something for God, and I, didn't, and I took this out. I, I was going to say something great for God, but let me just say this. Anything for God. Anyone who attempts to do something for God will encounter opposition. You can count on it. Anybody who attempts to do something for God will encounter opposition. You can absolutely count on it. We first encounter some of Nehemiah's opposition in chapter 2. I want to go back there and look at verse 9. He's already got permission. Let me get you up to speed a little bit. We've been using words that start with P for the whole time that we've done this. First thing that happens when you hit a wall, that's the name of this series, when you hit a wall. First thing that happens when you hit a wall is you pause and we, were gonna, we, we took some teenagers, and we had them run into the wall and, get, and knock themselves out, and, and they paused before they... F no, we didn't do that, but we were thinking about doing that so you guys could see how it works. Well, the second thing is you should pray. And Nehemiah spent uh, months praying and fasting and seeking the Lord. And then you plan, and then you prepare. And so there's all these different P words that we've gone through. And this is a two-word phrase, but this week it's pushback. Now you're ready to go. You've done your planning. You've done your preparation. You begin to do the work for the Lord, and all of a sudden, people are pushing back. When you think, but I'm trying to do something great. I'm trying to build God's kingdom. I, this is something God said I should do. And, and it's surprising when people push back. Maybe not so surprising when the world pushes back, but surprising when other Christians push back. When you thought they would be on your side, when you thought that they would be all for it. Well, in chapter 2, verse 9, Nehemiah's got all his uh, supplies and, and a little mini army from the king, and he's headed to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall. And he came to the governors of the province beyond the river, and they gave them the king's letters that said he could do this. And now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite servant, heard this, it displeased them. And some of your Bibles say it grieved them. So they're angry and sad and in turmoil uh, greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So can you believe this? Now, maybe you can believe Sam Bal can do that. He's got a lot of things going on. He's kind of doing a shakedown. Everything's for him and not anybody else. But when you find out, which you will right now, that Tobiah is a fellow Jew, basically. He says he's an Ammonite, but he's Jewish. Is not in favor of this? You go, but why? This would benefit you. This is, all, this is for all of us together. This will make the name of the Lord great again. This will make us a light on a hill. This will, we are God's chosen people. The temple people will be worshiping. We can teach other nations. Why aren't you happy? And, and in fact, gang, at this stage, they're just getting wind. The enemies of God are just getting wind of the idea that Nehemiah has a, a big dream. He's got something big to do. He hasn't even done anything yet. They don't have a lot of the details 
they don't know Nehemiah really from a hole in the wall, but they do sense that this is something opposite of their worldview. This guy's going to come and he's going to do something that doesn't feel right for us. We don't like it. We don't want him to do this. They sense that his success could possibly lead to their failure. That they sense that if Nehemiah pulls this off, then life's going to be different for us. Then we're going to be losers. He's going to be a winner. But mostly, gang, here's why they feel this way. And you need to know this when you encounter enemies of, of the Lord's work. Mostly, they have no thought of life outside what's best for them. You ever meet people like that? You think about it while I take a Red Bull hit. You ever meet people like that? They have no, here's what's really going on here. They can't comprehend how life is good for anybody or anything at any time when it's not, when it's not putting them first. So their whole thing is, you know, but it's about me. But life is good right now. But I have a lot of money. Uh, but the people pay me off. But I can do a shakedown. But I'm in charge. But I have the power. And if this guy comes and he is an authority, I won't have my power. I won't have my money. I won't have my life. I won't have my comfort. The key word is I, 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 I. So if they didn't forget the focus off of themselves, no, I, I, some of you are like, he didn't even take a hit. Wow, that's incredible. Do you think he forgot? No, I'll do it later. Two into this. In other words, gang, they are opposed to the things of God so naturally they're opposed to Nehemiah. They're opposed to the things of God. So Nehemiah comes along, and he's a representative of the Most High God. So it's automatic, gang. We don't like you. Why? We're not even sure why. You just reflect Jesus. You got the mission and, and his spirit all over you. So we don't like you. <clears throat> gang, this isn't all that unusual. In fact, as I, I just said, anyone who desires to do something impactful for God will encounter opposition. So can I tell you a secret that since we know it's going to come, and since, gang, you're sitting here right now as, a, as, a, as thinking about it or maybe all in for what's going to become, I mean, I know we're having church already, but this is just going to get better every week. In fact, I love it. I was telling Tom, you know, we got the trusses. The, aren't these great, these lit up trusses? Came, he just built these. Like, uh, I'm like, this is like birthday church. Every week I come, it's, you know, it's my birthday. I get another present up on the stage, something, something neat for all of us. So every week we're kind of adding it, but it's a lot of work right now. And we're excited about what God can do. It seems like every week there's, you know, 30, 40 extra people here, and, and it's building. But you've got to know this, because if opposition's going to scare you off the wall, if opposition's going to be a deal breaker for you, then you're going to quit when it comes. And, and gang, it's, it's, it's going to come. It's going to come. Because we're on God's mission, and Satan, lean in. No, really, lean in. Satan doesn't like God's work. And Satan's not asleep. He is noticing this thing beginning to blossom, and he's going to come up against it. Now, here's the good news. I hate how sometimes people portray God as the light part of the force, and they, they portray Satan as the dark side. That works for him, but the light side doesn't work for God because it's not an even match. It's not a tug of war. There's God and everybody else down here. It's not equal. It doesn't go back and forth. In fact, a lot of times God sends his angels to, to, to do work and to comfort us and to guard over us and watch over us, and he doesn't have to do it himself. In fact, the greatest war that took place is when Satan rebelled and he took a third of the angels with him and it says the angels battled and cast him out. And you don't even get the, you get the feeling that God's kind of sitting back and watching it. Because if he got involved, it would just be, that'd be it. It's not an equal match. But there will be opposition. And it's not that the opposition can beat us and it's not that the opposition can come against God and, ooh, this is scary. It's what the opposition can do. So here's the first thing I'm going to give you two Roman numerals. And under the first one is going to be, we're going to break down opposition into its six parts, okay? First thing, Roman numeral one is expect it. Expect opposition. It's coming. 
And I find the most powerful blows that opposition can deliver is sort of the one-two combination. It's the right cross of discouragement, and then it follows up with the uppercut of doubt, and it's, mo- it's enough to knock most Christians out of the match, to knock them out cold and, and just completely put them out of this thing. Those two punches alone. <clears throat> Part of the problem is because we are so conditioned to believe that God is only in something. And, and I'm not going to shove this down your throat. I want you to tell me if you see this and believe this in American evangelicalism. Oh, I like walking among you. You just can't do this in other settings, but I can do it now. And if anyone's asleep, I can, I can yell in the microphone. And, uh, and yeah, just, you know, give them, a little, give them a little prod or something. Make fun of them is even better. You know, because a lot of times you sleep, you're drooling, doing all, how did I get off track here? (laughs) I'm just picking on you is more fun than anything else. Oh, yeah, part of the problem is because we're so conditioned uh, in American evangelicalism to think that God's not in it unless what? How do we, in American evangelicalism, and I'm not saying this is right. In fact, I think it's wrong. How do we know God's in some, in American evangelicalism? Somebody just say it. Prosperous, yeah, or blessing, yeah. If everything we touch turns to gold, then we keep touching things and keep going along that path and we keep going, well, God's in it. Look how blessed my life is. Here's what's wrong with that. If that's the case, then the most godly person, uh, I don't know, one of the most godly people alive right now, I guess, would be George Soros. Another one would be Donald Trump. Those are the Billy Grahams and Mother Teresas of today, right, because they're really, really blessed. Is it, is it just that? Is that how it works? And that God's not in it if we're not completely blessed? Here's what's sometimes confusing. God loves to bless his children, but that's not, God's not a genie in a bottle that you sort of rub it and do his will a little bit, and then he has to bless you. He's not the dispenser of a vending machine. You put your prayers in, and out comes whatever you ask for. He's a heavenly father and a holy God, and, a, and he has his perfect will, and he wants a relationship with you. And so if you think about it as I'm going to just keep on going until every step is blessed, and when a step is not blessed, I'm pulling back. And I'm going to assume that God's not in it because I just got bit or this just hurt. The problem is, gang, please get this. God often drives us into a valley that looks hopeless and feels painful. Instead of everything going right, why would he do that? Why would a heavenly father who cares about us drive us to something that's going to hurt a little bit, maybe a lot? And we're going to look up and we're going to go, God, there's no way out of this. God, I was following you. I was doing your will, and I don't have anywhere to go now. Why would a God, a good God who loves us, who calls us his children, his sons and daughters, do that? All right, I'll answer for you. Here's why he would do that, because who gets the glory if you're bailed out and raised up and something great comes out of a completely hopeless situation? You? No, because you just admitted I... There's no way out, God. I can't do this. But what happens when you get out of it anyway and you get out of it better than you were? What happens when the work of God is bigger and better than you expected when it looked like it was over? What happens? Who gets the glory? Who does? God does. God alone. So why would he drive you to that? Because, guys, you may not like this, but this life is about God getting the glory, not us. It's about God getting all the glory. And so this is something I've discovered about God that I don't necessarily like. I'll let you in on that secret. It scares me. He pushes me towards those things that look hopeless. And until I catch on, I'm not going to do really, really great things for God until I know. In fact, he wants us to get to the point where it's most hopeless. We are most praised. We praise him most. We lift his name up most when it gets the darkest because we realize he's about to move. He's about to work. So here's a great defense for this attack that's coming. 
One word. Anticipation. Anticipation. So it's one of the best things that you can do. Once you've done everything Nehemiah did, you've, you're prayed up, you're planned up, you're prepared. And you know opposition's going to come, and it comes. If you expect it, gang, you can defend it. If you expect it, you can defend it. If you expect it, you won't be discouraged about it. And if you're not discouraged, chances are you're not going to doubt the vision, right? Because you expected this. In fact, the more opposition, this sounds kind of crazy, but the more opposition that comes your way, the more you think this might be valued in God's eyes, right? This is a lot of opposition, God. What are we on to? I mean, God, Satan's throwing everything. People are just really trying to, 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 to stand in the way of this thing. Everything is, seems to be going wrong. What is it Satan doesn't want here? What is it he's trying to prevent? If you can get to the place where you ask yourself that, you'll press in closer to God. You'll wait excitedly and expectedly for him to move faithfully. Now, doesn't that sound upside down, doesn't it? It does, because I don't meet a lot of people that praise God in their darkest moments. I don't, and I'm included. I, I don't always praise him in the darkest moments. I complain. I let him know how I feel. I indict the perfect God, but I shouldn't. Instead of waiting for the other shoe to drop, you'll be waiting for God to be glorified. Now, Nehemiah experienced all kinds of opposition on the way to seeing his vision of the wall rebuilt become a reality. Six specific ones. That's what we're going to go over. And he was ready for each one. Nehemiah had success because he prepared for each wave of attack that came in all its uniqueness and variety. He was ready for every one. We should be too. Gang, the, the vision and the mission, and after we finish up on Nehemiah in the next couple of weeks, that's what we're going to be doing be going over the vision and the mission of Impact Church. Why we're different, why in the world we would gather in a humongous gym and put metal chairs out and do this again in a city that has 900 or 1,000 churches. I doubt you all got up about a month ago and thought, oh man, we just need another church. I mean, I'm looking around, there's one on every corner, but I saw one the other day, an empty corner. And so I'm hoping we can go, no, there's a lot of churches, so why one more? I promise you, gang, it's going to be different. This one's going to lift high the name of Jesus. It's going to be different, and great things are going to happen, but there's going to be opposition, and we've already seen God beginning to do amazing things and bring a phenomenal group of folks together. Um, we're already anticipating, though, opposition. In fact, we're already experiencing it. In fact, God has brought me one step further in this. It was funny because I changed this this morning. I was looking at this, you know, I was going to say, and I thought, you know what, God, we've... I don't just expect opposition. You've, God will bring you to this one place. And it looks a little sick, so bear with me. It's sort of the, the matrix place. I feel like Neo. I don't just expect opposition. Here's what I am now. When it comes, I'm kind of like, you know, I'm having that little bring it moment. I really do. I know it's coming. I'm freakishly liking it. I'm, I'm freak. You're going, wow, this is the, the bizarre, masochistic pastor that we have here. He likes. It's not that I, I like a fight to happen. It's just that I know when it gears up and all its demonic activity and everything, I know, God, you're about to do something great. I know that. You're about to do something great. Bring it. And today is no different that, than in Nehemiah's time. Opposition usually comes as a five- or six-headed monster. We're going to go over these. Here's the first one that you should anticipate. Anticipate anger. Write it down. Anticipate anger. When people hear you talking about doing great things for God, don't expect everybody to be happy about it. Don't expect everybody to jump for joy. 
quite the opposite. Some people are going to be angry about it. In chapter 4, Nehemiah's enemies are at it again. In fact, they've recruited others. 4 verse 1. Now when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he was angry. There's the anger again. It keeps coming back. And greatly enraged. I thought they already said he was angry. He's not just angry. He's psychotic now. He's greatly enraged. Why? Because they're not just talking about it anymore. We're not talking about maybe we, we should do a church different. Maybe God should really be magnified in a much more serious, honoring way. Maybe we should plant a church. That's great. That makes me angry. I hope they never do it. Hey, did you hear there were people there? Now they're doing it. So he's angry because the wall's half built in this chapter. So there's no more talking about a dream. Nehemiah's actually doing it. Followers of Jesus attract opposition, and we really shouldn't be shocked. Jesus said in John 15, 18 through 19, this is a good thing to remember, then you won't be shocked. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So if you do things for Christ, the more you love the Lord, the bigger the thing you do, the greater the opposition, and the world will actually act like it hates you. They may not even know you, they may not know you from Adam, but they'll act like they hate you. For some reason, the very presence of Christians gets some people upset. You ramp this up to actually being sold out, Christ followers, and you'll see this reaction go from simple anger to vein popping, red in the face, frothing at the mouth, psychotic people. In Muslim countries, try just saying, in Iran, try going out and just going to the equivalent of Starbucks, I don't know what that would be, in Iran, and just sitting back and going, hey guys, I met Christ last night, and I'm really fired up about being a Christian, just thought we'd have a party tonight and celebrate. How will that go? That's, the party's going to be in jail if you're lucky. The celebration's going to be rocks thrown at your head, probably. Why? Just because you... Now, I find in some of these countries that you could identify with the most bizarre things, and they'll laugh at you, maybe mock you, but they're not going to do what they'll do if you say you're a Christian. There's something about following Christ that really drives the world insane. And I think the hint is how the demons reacted to Jesus when he was on this earth, physically walking on this earth. How did they react? Oh, he's not on our team. We'll just step back. It's his turn. Now, when the name of Jesus was mentioned, they just went crazy. They went ballistic. They believed in him. They had to submit to him, but, but they hated him. You ever noticed that, or have you noticed lately that even America is getting worse? Anybody notice that? It's getting worse in America now. They're starting to be ridicule for being a Christian, opposition for being a Christian uh, just because you're a Christian. You could probably go to a festival in uptown Charlotte and set up a, a, a booth to do naked face painting or something bizarre there and get less flack than if you were at that same festival passing out tracks. You get less flack. Some people might laugh at you and go, that's really bizarre, but it kind of fits in in our tolerant culture. But if you just talk about Christ and pass out tracks... All of a sudden, people, you know, act like you're an axe murderer. That's natural, but for some reason, Christians don't expect it. You should. Again, what Nehemiah is setting out to do here is a good thing. It's not just good for him, but it's good for all the people. But gang, is there anybody here involved in this thing we're talking about that it's not good for? Anybody here that it's not good for? Not here at, at Impact. We might need to get a, some more chairs for, for some folks coming in, guys. Jump, jump, jump. Uh, <clears throat> I'll tell you who it's not good for. It's not good for Sam Ballot. It's not good for Tobiah. 
the Ammonite, the Horonite, and all the rest of the parasites and everybody else that comes in there. Why is it not good for them? Man, I can hear my voice echoing and all in here, but I can't even hear you guys breathing. Are you here? I'm keep going. No feedback yet, Kendall. Can I keep walking? Sorry, you guys. So why is it not good for Tobiah? Why is it not good for Sambal? We kind of already said, right? Well, because they own this town. They're getting money. They're getting paid off. It's sort of a shakedown mentality. And if Nehemiah does this and they rebuild the wall, then they're out of business. And their honor's gone and their power's gone. So they think it's not good for him. Gang, if all you crave is power, you can't possibly crave God. If all you crave is power, you can't possibly. There's not room on the throne of your heart for him and you. There's not. There's a hole in everybody's heart since Adam and Eve sinned, and that hole is shaped like God, and you can only fill it with God. And if you try to put yourself there, you're going to be frustrated in your life. Put God there, you're going to be satisfied in your life, but there's not room for both of you. And gang, I don't care how puffed up you are about your own self-image. I don't care how high your self-esteem hits on the charts. You make a bad God. You're not a good God. Throughout the last several weeks, we've seen this guy's name pop up, Sambala. He's as bad as it gets. Dan Sutherland, there's a great book on the, on the um, book of Nehemiah. He wrote a book called Transitioning. He says, Sam Ballot is the leader from hell. And he says, I have not looked it up, but I'm convinced that the Hebrew word for Sam Ballot means leader from hell. Now, I've encountered enough Sam Ballots in my time as a pastor that I tend to agree with Dan Sutherland. The Hebrew must mean leader from hell. We all have Sam Ballots in our life. If you're living for God at all, you've encountered this kind of person. If some of you are going, I'm not, sure I, I'm not sure I have. Well, that can mean just two things. Either you're not living for God, and so the world loves you. What did Jesus say? If you live for me, he's going to hate you. If you live for the world, they're not even gonna, you're not even going to show up on the radar. They're going to think you're one of them. But if you live for God, it's going to recognize you and hate you. So, but you may be sitting there going, I don't know. Who are these people? How do I know if they're opposed to me? Well, it's the one who opposes everything that you propose. That'd be this person. Hey, why don't we do this? Why don't we not? They hate everything you like. They want to back up every time you want to charge forward. You have, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but you have people like that in your life? They just look at it and go, why? I mean, everything I want to do for God, why don't you want to do it? Why don't you want to follow? Why don't you want to lift high the name of Jesus? You call yourself a Christ follower. Everybody's got that. Now, I won't recommend that you call him leader from hell to his face. But you might could call him Sam Ballot. We'll leave it at that. So whenever you set out to do something, build something great for God, there will inevitably be those that come along um, and oppose it. But there will be some that will kind of act like they're for it or act like they're, you know, sort of neutral. And by the way, what did Jesus say about neutral people? You're either for me or against me. I can't find the neutral in there, can you? In fact, if you read in Revelation, he hates lukewarm. I wrote, I wrote a blog post about this. There's nothing in the Bible about God being in favor of the middle. There's nothing in the Bible about God loving fence sitters. It, it makes God angry. But when you do something great for God, there won't just be people that oppose it overtly. There will be people that oppose it covertly. They won't do much, but they don't want to work. But they're going to kind of see where the chips fall in the end. They're going to kind of see where this thing lands. And if it lands good, then they're going to come forward and go, I was for it all the time. In fact, I, I've got a lot to offer, and I should lead it. The techoids, the, uh, the royals, the nobles um, of the techoids building the wall refused to do any work. But in the end, you're going to see them as we go along in, uh, in the book of Nehemiah. You're going to see them come 
in the end when the wall's built and things are going great and go, you know, I was for it all along. And it's time for people to be elected and put in charge, and they actually want to be put in charge of this. <clears throat> when it's done. And when it's done, they'll claim it for themselves. Not only do Sambat and Tobiah do this, but some of the nobles do it as well. These guys do nothing, but in the end, they want the people to support them. All right, what's next? Number two, anticipate apathy. I mean, for me, this is worse than anger. It's kind of the lukewarm thing. And gang, I get it. Some people are not going to get fired up about seeing the church become an unstoppable force. I don't know why you wouldn't, but some people are not. The polar opposite of the enthusiasm that we saw in chapter 2 a few weeks ago where everybody's like, they rose up and said, let's rebuild this wall, this will be great. Well, the polar opposite of that is the apathy showed in chapter 3 and again in chapter 4. In chapter 3, verse 5, it says this, the next section, here's those guys I was talking about. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under the supervisor. They just wouldn't do it. You'd think these guys would have been the first in line in such a worthy project. Certainly, their lives would have been better, better off for worship, safer when the wall is restored. There's just one problem. They have something they are far more interested in than whether or not true, vibrant worship is ever going to happen again in Jerusalem, and that is power. Again, now, these are Jews. This isn't Sam Bell. This isn't even Tobiah, who is a Jew. These are the Jewish royals in Jerusalem. But they're saying if that wall's rebuilt, we've worked it out with Sam Ballot, and we've worked it out with Tobiah that we've got power too. It works in this system. It's not going to work in the old God system. If we restore things to God, well, then people are going to be looking to God, and people are going to be looking to true worship again, and we're going to lose out. So these are God's very own people refusing to do his work because they'll lose their life of comfort and wealth and prosperity. Power can be a very, very blinded, blinding thing. And gang, these are also people who have the added, I think, thing that makes them worse is that they're nobles. What makes a, uh, what makes a, a noble different than somebody who has, you know, started in the mailroom of a company and worked their way up and became CEO? What makes a noble different? I mean, how many of you are into watching Prince Harry and Prince William and to follow the wedding? You know, okay, just show of hands. How many of you watched the wedding? Here's back. All right. You people have nothing better to do. I cannot believe they were. So why are they important people? Why, and why are they royal? Why? They're just, they're just born into it. Is there anything luckier than that? That's luckier than winning the Powerball at 300 million. That's just as lucky as it gets. You, just, you don't do a thing. You're just born. You just come out of your mother's womb. They smack you on the bottom, and you're, you, everything's going to be handed to you. Uh, life on a silver spoon for the rest of your life. That's these people. They're royal just by, they're just royal. They're not used to work. They're used to everything being handed to them. And this isn't going to be handed to them. Nehemiah says everybody's going to be on the wall and everybody's going to work. And they said, well, not everybody. We're royals. I don't know if you looked us up. We're, we're blue bloods. We don't work, but we'll be happy to make fun of you while you're doing it. And Nehemiah's going, no, you'll work now or when this is done, you'll have no part in it. Well, it's not going to get done. That's what they're thinking in their hearts. They're also thinking, when it does get done, the people love us, and we're blue bloods. We're royal, so they have to put us back in charge. They're going to have a rude awakening. So verse 12 of chapter 4, the Jews who live near the enemy came and told us again and again, they will come from all directions and attack us. Here's chapter 4 where there's apathy. The opposition has risen up, and we're going to um, 
tell you in just a moment what that is. And the Jews that don't live inside the wall that's being the walled part of Jerusalem, they live in the outskirts, are starting to get more scared because the enemy's out there. And they're telling their brothers and sisters now, it's not worth it, just forget the whole thing. This is going to get really, really ugly. Come outside the wall and live with us and let's just be passive. It's really a form of apathy again. They're trying to say, I didn't know there was going to be any kind of opposition. I didn't know this was going to be hard. Come join us in a life of nothing. And it was, it's kind of like the Jews and God's people when they got freed up by Moses and they left Egypt and they're wandering around for just a couple of weeks in the desert. But God's feeding them and God's taking care of them. What did they say? I want to go back to Egypt. Really? Did, did you forget what it was like? I want to go back to Egypt. It was better there. You were slaves. Yeah, but we got fed. You got fed slop that was left over. Yeah, but we had jobs. No, you were slaves. You didn't even get paid. And you start to think that life was better without God because you don't have patience. You can't wait out, and you come off the wall before the time is there. All right, number three of the six things. Expect mocking and ridicule. Expect mocking and ridicule. Take a look at this. After high school, I'm going to play football at Notre Dame. <laughs> You're going to play football at Notre Dame? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to buy a mansion on Lakeshore Drive. Rudy. Bah. <laughs> Sherry, honey, can I get you <laughs> Love that laugh at the end for some reason. <laughs> and so, any of you guys seen the story of Rudy? I mean, it's an incredibly inspiring story. Not a big guy. Not a great athlete, but he had a dream, and it was a pretty worthy dream. It was a pretty cool dream, except he went through basically every one of these six forms of opposition. There's his own dad, brother, family there ridiculing him, laughing at the kid's dream when he's little. For most of us, if it's done at that age, you'll crush, crush it right out of the person. That's his phase. And we got a little bit ahead of ourselves with this one, but let's back up to verses 2 and 3. And he said in the presence of his brothers in the army of Samaria, this is Sam Ballot talking, what are these feeble Jews doing? Okay, there's the first ridicule right there. They're strong people. They're, they're, they're people with pride. And what does he call them? He just sticks that little jab in there. These feeble Jews. Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? What, what's happening here? Well, I've read this dozens of times, even, even taught on it twice before, but I've never seen how hilarious this is. Don't miss this guy. These guys are actually on the ropes. As they're making fun of Nehemiah, here's what's happening. Every ridicule that they make here is a self, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I've never noticed this before. The Jews look strong, so he refers to them as feeble. And, and his biggest fear there is that they're going to be too strong and they're actually going to do this. So what happens? He gives them the idea. He can make them mad. So they go, no, we're not feeble, we're strong. It becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Will they restore it for themselves? Yes, that's exactly who they will restore it for, so that they can worship the one true God again. Will they sacrifice? Yep, they will. That's the plan, absolutely. Will they restore it in a day? In other words, no one's been able to do this for a century and a half. <laughs> These guys going to do it in a day. Here's what he's saying. Are they going to be able to do this quickly? You can't even do this taking a year, two years, ten years, a hundred years. And guess what? That gives them the idea to go, you know what? That's a good idea. We should probably do this quickly. There's a lot of enemies out there. So these fools are ridiculing them, and the ridicule is making the Jews mad, and it's actually giving them ideas. It's how foolish the opposition In other words, no one's been able to do this. Uh, you think you're going to do it in weeks? No, we didn't, but that's a good idea. Yeah, let's do it in weeks. 
Four for four, that's the goal, to have it up in just a few weeks. This guy is a verbal processor, Sam Ballot. He thinks out loud. He's probably given him ideas and self-fulfilling prophecies. He'd be far better off as an enemy just to keep his mouth shut. Now, what kind of tactic is this? Well, again, the goal here for this tactic of ridicule and everything is discouragement. That's the goal. Get the people discouraged. If the enemy can get you and me uh, to work in our own strength, then first of all, then we won't see great big miracles for God because we're working in our own strength, right? And then since we don't see big things from God because we're working in our own strength, we're going to get discouraged. But because we thought we were doing a God thing, but we are working in our own strength, we're going to get discouraged with God, not ourselves. You see how that works? We're going to get mad at God because he thinks, we think he should have been doing great big things because he's a great big God and great big things don't happen. But what was really going on? You weren't even trying to engage God. You were doing this for yourself. And this is what they're hoping will happen here. Now, gang, this, here, here's another one of the, the scoffing things here. Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, yeah, what they are building, if a fox goes up on the wall, breaks their stone wall. What's he saying here? They'd already started building it. He's saying it's a house of cards. As walls go, that's a crummy wall. If a little fox manages to jump up on that thing, the weight of a fox will make it fall down. It's really wimpy. It's not done with excellence. It's a poor wall. Was it? No, it was strong. But what if this works? What if the people start looking at it and going, you know, Nehemiah, what was he again? A cupbearer to the king, Artaxerxes? He's not really a wall builder. Does he have his contractor's license? Can he build? Does he know what he's doing? Is this foundation? Are there trusses? Is this gone deep? And I'm not sure this wall will hold up. What happens again? The ridicule will cause them to doubt. If it works. If it works. Hey, Pastor Rob, this is you talking. We don't have much right now. How's this going to work, this thing called impact? I think it's pretty much in your head right now. Well, no, I'm seeing it begin to be in your heads and in your hearts. We don't even have pipe and drapes. You, you talk about pipe and drapes. It's common. Pipe and drapes don't make a church, by the way. <clears throat> well, we, uh, I'm used to having Starbucks and my coffee. We don't even have that. How are we going to make it? Pastor Rob, I mean, I know there's coffee out there. We don't have a full band. How's that going to work? Can I suggest to you all that's the wrong focus? And that's why so many churches in the Charlotte area haven't worked. That's why they haven't worked. We're trying to put everything that we think we need in place for comfort and so we can do this thing called church instead of just submitting to God and starting a movement of an unstoppable force that's his idea. That'll more than work. That'll thrive. Instead of focusing on what I just mentioned, instead we ought to focus on over 200 people in week five. It took me two years, first time I planted a church, to get to 200 people. And we're there in, in a few weeks. I, I'd say it is a God movement already. Sambout is Nehemiah's main enemy, but Tobiah is a close second, and, and at least in one way here, gang, he's worse. And that one way is, as I said before, he's a Jew. In other words, he's one of them. And one of my favorite singers, Michael Card, used to say, only a friend can betray a friend. A stranger has nothing to gain. In that one sense, Tobiah's wounds, I think, hurt more because he's supposed to be one of them. <clears throat> How many of you have ever heard of a thing called the politics of ridicule? Anybody ever heard of that? Any of you guys ever get out at all other than today? In the... Wow. You guys are seeing it. We're in an election year. Have you not seen the politics of ridicule on TV? Well, that's four of you. I heard four yeses. It's actually a, a, a very purposeful technique. I don't know if you knew that. 
Anybody ever heard of Saul Alinsky? You're getting political, Pastor Rogers. Back off. No, here he goes. He's the founder of the modern community organization um, sort of movement. And he wrote a book in the 60s. And here's, and it doesn't really matter who he is, but a lot of people uh, agreed with this book. Here it is. Rid- quote, ridicule is man's most potent weapon. It is almost impossible to counteract ridicule. Also, it infuriates the opposition, which then reacts to your advantage. So you see what's happening? Say, listen, if you're losing and you don't have the facts and you don't have God on your side, I don't even believe in God, and you don't, you know, Solinsky doesn't, and, and there's nothing going for you and you're going down in flames, just shift gears and start making fun of the person. And he's saying, that's actually a great technique. I mean, if you're in a debate with someone and it's absolutely getting toasted, just go, but you have big ears. What? I mean, you're going to throw them off. You know, I, I would feel that way too if I didn't have a receding hairline like you. I mean, you just, look, you just start making fun of him, and all of a sudden, he's off course. Well, Saul Linsky didn't come up with that. I think Sam Ballot did. And Tobias, it's the politics of ridicule. They're actually making fun of the wall. Fox gets on that thing, it's going to topple down. Politics of ridicule. I, I disagree with Mr. Linsky that ridicule is almost impossible to not react to. It can often seem that way to thin-skinned people who are used to playing by the rules, but actually if you expect it in that form, I mean, it's easy to just laugh at it. It's easy to see what the enemy's doing and realize that's not who I am in Christ. So it doesn't matter what you say. Number four, we've got to move quicker. Count on criticism. Take a look. Whoa, whoa, wait. Where are you going? I'm going to see Notre Dame. Do you have some friends in the South Bend? No. Well, then there must be some other reason. When, when you read the announcement in class, I thought you said anybody could go. I'm sorry, Rudy. This bus is for students who are interested in attending the university. It's not a sightseeing tour. Well, maybe someday I could go to school there. Father Joseph, uh, would you take over for me? Of course. Thank you. Rudy. You don't have the grades for Joliet Community, much less Notre Dame. The secret to happiness in this life is to be grateful for the gifts the good Lord has bestowed upon us. Rudy, not everyone is meant to go to college. Notre Dame is for rich kids. Smart kids, great athletes. It's not for us. So, uh, again, I love that movie because he doesn't give up. But here he's into about the fourth stage of opposition, his own father, and then uh, the priests are saying, but it's not you. You don't have what it takes. You don't have the grades. You're too small. Stop with this dream. Criticism, just picking on things about Rudy. They could have very easily... <clears throat> Florida men stopped the dream right there. Now, there's good criticism. I mean, sometimes people will put a word in front of it that'll tell you that good criticism's about to come your way. What's it called? Constructive <laughs> criticism. This is the kind, like a construction worker. It'll build you up. But I find most criticism that has to be prefaced with that word is really destructive criticism meant to tear you down. The wounds of a friend, Scripture says, are, are, are good, are helpful. 
And there is a kind of criticism that will help you get on your game, but there's a kind of criticism that just is meant to tear down, and that's what the opposition uses here. Next, number five, look for lies. I have this as number five, but honestly, it should be number one when it comes to tactics the evil one likes to use. It's similar to the politics of ridicule. Let's call it ridicule's second cousin here because it's a little bit different too because it's not just like the mocking sort of that a clown in a, in a dunking booth would do at the county fair, at the county fair. How many of you ever been to like a fair and you've seen the dunking booth guy that makes fun of people? You ever seen that? I mean, it's usually a dunking booth, but they're not even worth going to unless you've got a really skilled, sarcastic David Spade kind of clown in there. And for when I was about 14, 15 years old, I mean, this was uh, way, way back in, in the ancient days. We used to go to this, uh, this fair at Ocean City, Maryland, and there's this one clown. I doubt he's there anymore. He'd be, he's probably 101 years old now. But he was hilarious. He would, no matter what, and this is just the guys I remember this. Girls would throw too. But whatever guy would go up there, first thing he would do is ask your name. And the best thing you can do is not tell him. Just ignore him because I don't care what it is. You say, what's your name, Sam? Well, why don't you throw the ball, Sally? I mean, he would constantly give it a girl's name no matter what. And I, like an idiot, forgot this. Went up there to throw it. What's your name, Rob? Okay, Roberta. I bet you can't. I just got so mad. I probably spent 20 bucks. And to a kid, that's like $200 in kids' money trying to get this guy thrown in there. And he would just, he'd make fun of your manliness. He'd be like, throw it, Roberta. Just throw it. And he would just do all this sort of feminine stuff. That's the, that's ridicule. That's the dunking booth kind of approach. This is different because this isn't just looking at you and maybe distorting something about you. This is knowing what you're like and saying outright lies. This is, this is slander. This is saying something you know to be untrue. <clears throat> when Satan tries to take down a believer with discouragement and doubt, he'll lie and get people to lie for him and outright slander him or her until they feel they can't possibly defend themselves. You sit there and you want to wait, jump up and down and go, but that's not true. That's not how it happened. That's not how it took place. And it's very easy to get discouraged with that. Number six, foresee a fight. Take a look. absolutely love that. Oh, he's got to fight. His own coach is going to fight him there. You can't do it. Get him out of there. Let's quit playing games. There's a criticism. And then there's actually potential for a fight there. And he says, no, I'm not going to quit. I'm not coming down off the wall. I'm not getting off this team no matter what you do to me. This is my dream. And I'm going to go forward. Verse 7, but when Sambal, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashad heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead, and that the gaps were being closed. They were very angry. That's a broken record there. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble. So now it's moving from a verbal thing and ridicule and criticism to we're going to have to physically get violent to stop this thing, <clears throat> to stir up trouble against Jerusalem. But what did they do? But we prayed. We prayed to our God, and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Listen, prayer is great, and prayer is where you should start, and prayer is mandatory. But God does not want you to just pray and not move. 
He wants you to pray, and then when he tells you where you are to go in obedience, you go and you pray on the way. You keep on praying, but you don't sit there and wait for God to do it. He partners up with you. You go and pray. So they're angry again. The enemy never is quite able to get a hold of his emotions. And this time he's seen that ridicule and anger and criticism and all that and, and slander are not doing the trick, so now it's time to fight. There's going to be some violence. Verse 10, Meanwhile, the people of Judah said, The strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. Also, verse 11, Also our enemies said, Before they know it, they'll see us. So there's fear now. We'll be right there among them, and we'll kill them, and we'll put an end. And let me just put the word God in there. We'll put an end to God's work. This whole thing will be over. Maybe none of the talk has worked, but we'll just go in there and we will end it with physical violence. So what in the world can the Christ follower do against this kind of opposition? Here's how I want to finish out today. That's the opposition. That's what he's going to throw at you in thousands and thousands of years, ever since Adam and Eve, uh, the first man. This has not changed. This is the evil one's game plan. What's the first thing you can do? This is Roman numeral two in your notes there. First and foremost, stay on the wall. Stay on the wall. Stay on vision. The goal for Satan is that the unbeliever never finds Christ. That's the first goal Satan has in your life, that you would never know the life-changing truth, grace and mercy and forgiveness that Jesus Christ paid for you on the cross. But if you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and you become an adopted child of the King, guess what? He has another goal. And what do you think that is? Well, get you off vision. Get you off the wall. End it. Because as long as you're on the shelf for God, you're not doing anything, well, that's second best. First thing is you never get saved. But if you get saved, Satan says, well, I'll just take him off the field. I'll take him off the wall. I'll get him out of the game. And then he won't be a threat. Question. Is your life making an impact right now? This is rhetorical. Do not answer. Just think about it. Is your life making an impact for the kingdom right now? Are you leaving an everlasting mark on others right now? How about on each other here in this church? Maybe some of you go, well, it's my, my first Sunday. Okay, you're excused. The rest of you on each other here. Are you making an impact on the body right here on each other? Are you determined to mark the community around you by telling your lost friends and family about Jesus? Are you determined to do that? Or are you going, I didn't know I was supposed to even do that, Pastor Rob? Are you determined to invite them to impact? You know, we've been saying when this series ends, we're going to be talking about the DNA of this church, the things we must infuse into our DNA if we're going to be an unstoppable force, things that in my time as a pastor I've learned that it's much harder to turn an oil tanker. I was wrong. It doesn't take five miles to turn an oil tanker. I looked it up this week. And it was on the internet, so it must be true. And here's what I found out. I found that it takes 13 miles to turn an oil taker around. How many of you jet ski? Any jet skiers? It's a very out of shape, unathletic group. You don't do anything. Every quick. Well, a jet ski can just turn, like do donuts. You can turn on a dime. When something's fast and small, like we are right now and just building up, put the stuff in your DNA. Listen, gang, we are an inviting culture. We are an inviting culture. How long do we got to keep on inviting, Pastor Rob? As long as there's one lost person out there, we keep inviting. If you can prove to me that everybody knows Jesus outside the walls of this school here, we can stop. I'll make that deal with you. Until that day comes, you all ought to, your, your goal ought to bring a, every family ought to bring another family every single week. How can we do that? I'll tell you how you can't do it. Some of you are like, I don't know any unbelievers. Well, that's a poor start. 
I don't know my neighbors. Get out of the house. Bake them a pie. Do something. I don't cook. Then don't bake them a pie. Don't do that. Do something different. But get to know your neighbors. All right, so stay on vision. Stay on the wall. Here's three ways that you can do that, and we'll close with that. These three things will help. First of all, it'll take future sight. In other words, keep the end goal in mind. Stay on vision. See what it can become. For Nehemiah, uh, it was a way of life. It was what the way of life would be for Jerusalem once that wall was built. What do you think Nehemiah saw? All he saw in his mind was a finished wall, a finished wall. I know when this is built, I can see the people with pride again. I can see them gathering. I can see the Sabbath day coming and everybody going to the temple. I'm going to keep my eyes on that. That's what he kept his eyes on. That's what he wanted. So the wall was going to get done. And everything along the way was not what he was focused on. Keep your eyes on future sight. What can Impact Church become? Gang, I promise you when we unpack this vision in the weeks ahead, you're going to be blown away at what we're going after as a church. I can tell you I've been wanting to do this, praying about this, unsettled about it for the last four years of my life. And here's another thing that opposition can do. Opposition sometimes can make you go out and do God's will when you thought you were already doing it. I thought I already was. I thought that, that my role was to try and turn an oil tanker. And, and God's saying, I'm actually trying to get you out there to get a speedboat going and do it right. But I don't want to do a speedboat. I'm not a speedboat guy. Planting churches is not my thing. God disagrees. He says, we want you to do this, and it's going to be the dream that I gave you 20 years ago that's really my dream, my vision for this part of the country, it's going to happen. It's going to happen through Impact Church. I believe that. I can see it right now. I'm looking at you, but I can see it right now, what it's going to be. I'm not going to cheat and get ahead of myself. I promised the board I wouldn't do that, so I will wait. I'll wait till next week. It's coming out by next week. <laughs> so uh, ours is this in a nutshell. I'll give you that much this week. <laughs> To make an eternal impact for Christ by marking the body, community, world, and future with his love. I went away uh, on a sabbatical time about four years ago, and God gave me that. It seems so simple, I think, to some of you, but it's huge for me because I, I, in, in a land of a thousand churches, listen, if churches around here were really making an impact, a mark that's eternal, do you think the world would even look like this? Do you think Charlotte would even look like this? I mean, really, the church in Charlotte is about a mile wide and an inch deep. Jesus changed the world with 12 men, really 11. 12 if you throw in the Apostle Paul. We've got 1,000 churches and we can't change Charlotte. Something's wrong. Something's wrong. So I look around here and I go, well, I see more than 12 people. So we can change the world. Get ready because it's going to blow you away when I unveil it. The next couple of months as, as a launch team, I'm going to be unpacking that. Here's the second thing. It'll take a season of heavier commitment. It just does, gang. The Jews did not spend the rest of their lives building a wall, but they did spend 52 days committed to building that wall. That was harder. We're going to take about six months minimum in getting the launch team together, and I can tell you some things that, that, that we're looking for. There's a, probably 200, 250 people. If everybody shows up, kids, men, women right now, there's about 300. Well, we've got to about double that as a launch team. What's the goal? Well, to be the size church and to have the different campuses and to, and to do what God has called us to do that's going to sound crazy but absolutely going to happen, we need about 400, 500 volunteers. That's not the church, gang. That's the workers. It's going to be about five or 600 people that get in here and work. They're the greeters. They're the child care workers. They're, they're everybody. Just minimal to support 
the church that God is going to build out of this thing. I've already said too much. I'll, I'm in trouble for that. So I'm going to move on. How can you get involved right now before I even unpack this? Well, a little thing called worship plus two. That means when we gather as a church like we are right now, you show up and you worship with us. You don't say, well, I'm waiting for all the bells and whistles. Well, the Holy Spirit's here right now, and that's all we need. So you worship when we gather if you can. That means bad hair days and non-72-degree weather days. You still come and you worship with us. Uh, That means you serve, worship plus two. That means you serve in one ministry, and you're a part of an impact life group. Now, some of them are going to be kicking off today. If you look behind you, gang, right here is the Impact Life Group booth that we have. There's also different serving ministry booths. We, have, we did a little f- ministry fair last week, and we decided that for the next five, six months, we're going to leave these up every single week, every single week. Why? Because everybody who's on a launch team, decides to be a part of a launch team, needs to be involved in Worship Plus 2. And then finally, it'll take a season of intense sacrifice. It just will. Everyone's sacrificing financially to get it off the ground with our tithes. And by the way, gang, let me say this. That doesn't mean equal, equal tithe. I mean, honestly, if Donald Trump walks in here, and I hope he does, and he tithes, you know, $100, that's like one or, me and you putting a penny in the offering. It's equal sacrifice, but not equal amounts. It's just whatever God will look at and say, you know, you care about this church. You're trusting me. Uh, it's to put in the time it requires to, to bring our unique talents, okay? Think of it this way. Tithes, time, and talents in heavy doses. We do this, and I promise you, according to God's Word, Jesus will build this church into an unstoppable force. He promises that. That's just our part of the, the bargain. So stay on vision. Keep living for Christ when Satan tries to knock you off the wall. A young person. I see some high schoolers spread out in here. We got an we have an astronomically high proportion of kids and, and youth in this, which I think is fantastic. That's the way that you want to start. So when Satan tries to knock you off the wall, when your friends ridicule you for being maybe a Jesus freak, my suggestion to you, stay on the wall. Stay on the wall. You won't regret it. Men and women in the workforce, when, when it may cost you a promotion, you know, when, when they may say, or it may say, your boss may say, I'll give you a promotion if you just lay aside that Jesus stuff, stay on the wall. Stay on the wall. Don't look at the, the, the ridicule or the tempting things to knock you off the wall. <clears throat> All of us, when Satan whispers in our ear not to get involved with serving because a church plant is too hard, stay on the wall. Stay focused. All of us, when the evil one tries to tell you that your dream will never happen, stay on the wall. ready, Jack? I've been ready for this my whole life. Then you take us out on feet.
maybe I'm a little bit sappy when it comes to movies like that, but there's just a feeling, sort of the Rocky thing, all that. It just wells up my heart when I see something like that. Somebody had a dream who just didn't give up, didn't get off the wall, didn't get off vision, just no matter what happened, he stuck with it. And gang, one of the things that God has blessed me with, some would say a blessing, some would say a curse, is just vision. I mean, when he tells me to do something, he puts it in my mind and my heart, I can see it like a screen. I can see it painted out, and I know where this church is going, and it's incredible. But we've got to stay on the wall. We do, and we're going to have that feeling as a church. And you who are involved at the early stage are going to say, you know what, I was a part of building that. I was a part of that when it was just meeting in a gym. And look what God has done. Let's pray. Father, we love you, Lord. We thank you for what a privilege and an honor it is to be on a team with you, Lord. We know that you can do this without us. God, I know that. I know that I'm just your mouthpiece and you could choose anyone else. So it's a privilege, Lord, and an honor, the greatest of my life, to be able to do this and lead this. God, give us everything that we need, determination, love for you, and a spirit to chase after you to stay on the wall and stay on this mission, Lord. We know opposition is going to come. Help us to recognize it and plow right through it, Father, on our way to becoming an unstoppable force to lift up your name, give glory and honor to you. And now, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to give back to you, Lord, help us to love you so much that we sacrifice, knowing that you'll take care of us, Lord, and you'll bless us more because we've given to you and trusted you with our tithes and offerings and this mission. For it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.